Future City is made possible by Janine and Josh Fiddler and supported by the Baltimore Community Foundation, whose vision is that Baltimore boasts a growing economy where all have the opportunity to thrive. I'm Wes Moore, and welcome to our fifth episode of Future City, a show that reframes the question from what's wrong with Baltimore to what's next. Each month, we look to another U.S. city that's doing something innovative and ask whether that idea could work here. Now, in previous episodes, we've looked at community schools in Cincinnati, decriminalizing marijuana in Denver, and mental health crisis training for police in San Antonio. But now, as we start 2017, with many of us anxious about developments on the national and international scene, there's a bright spot here in Maryland. Right now, both the courts and the legislature are talking about how to reform a part of our justice system that is widely considered broken, and that's bail. So, just for centering, let me explain how bail works. Let's say you're charged with a crime, and a judge decides that you're not a danger to society, but she doesn't quite trust you to show up for court on your own free will. So, she gives you an added incentive. So long as you put up some money as bond, you can go home, and she'll return the money to you once you show up for trial. And if you have the money, it's no big deal, right? But if you don't have the money, you either stay in jail or you have to get it from someplace else, which means that bail disproportionately hurts poor people whose lives are already fragile. An analysis by the Office of the Public Defender found that over a five-year span, more than 17,400 Marylanders were jailed for at least five days because they couldn't pay bails of $5,000 or less. Even a short stay in jail can cost a person their job, their shelter bed, or custody of their kids. Poor people regularly plead guilty to things they didn't do simply to get out. Keeping them locked up costs the state too. Here in Maryland, locking up 7,000 plus defendants on any given day costs between $500,000 and $1 million, when supervision outside of jail is 10 times cheaper. Which brings us to the third option commercial bail bondsmen who promise to pay your bail if you fail to show up for trial. In exchange, you pay them 10% of all bail amounts, which they get to keep regardless of whether you're found innocent, meaning poor people can still be in debt to bail bondsmen years after false charges against them have been dropped, while people with more money, guilty of more serious crimes, walk free. In recent years, a task force and the governor's commission have spent a lot of time studying reforms needed in Maryland's bail system and recommended changes that would mean a major overhaul of bail practices. But no changes followed. Until now. Earlier this month, Maryland's highest court heard six hours of testimony about proposed new rules that could keep people who have been arrested from languishing in jail because they cannot afford bail. The court delayed their decision until February, but the hearing added a sense of momentum around the issue. In the coming weeks, four new bills around bail are likely to come before Maryland's General Assembly, and they could propose everything from eliminating bail completely to creating broad classes of defendants whom judges can't release before their trials. As the state considers what to do next, here on Future City, we're going to take a look at two places that have reformed their pre-trial justice systems in very different ways. Washington, D.C., and Louisville, Kentucky. But first, let's get a grounding in what pre-trial justice looks like here in Maryland with our first guest who's joining us by phone. 
Maryland's Attorney General Brian Frosch. Attorney General Frosch, it is a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much. It's great to be with you, Wes. Thank you. So in October, you issued an opinion saying that you believe that our state's bail system is unconstitutional, and that prompted a court hearing that we just heard about and I just spoke about. We'll get to that in a moment, but first, if you would, can you start us off by just helping our listeners who might not be as familiar with this issue? What happens right now in Maryland to someone who's charged with a crime after they've been charged but before they actually stand trial? So they go before a judicial officer, a commissioner or a judge, and that person decides a number of different things. First, is this person going to uh, be a danger if, if I let him go? Uh, second, is this person going to show up for trial uh, if I set trial? It, what's supposed to happen if either of those conditions is uh, going the wrong way, if the person's a threat, if the person's not going to show up for trial, the judge uh, will say, okay, I'm going to hold him over till trial. Shouldn't let him go. Sometimes they set bail in a very high amount, an amount they think the defendant can't meet. But most of the time, the answers to those questions are that the person is going to show up, the person isn't going to hurt anybody if released, and uh, then there are a number of different options. Unfortunately, what happens too often is that the judge sets bail in a low amount and the person can't find the money to get out of jail pending trial. Now remember, none of these people have been convicted. And as you said, there are seven to 8,000 people in jail every day in Maryland waiting for trial. They're all innocent until proven guilty. For ones who the judges don't think are a threat, think won't flee before trial, sometimes bail is set in a low amount, and all it means is they have to come up with $1,000. But there was a story in the Washington Post a couple weeks ago about a woman named Shannon Wise. Bail said she's got to come up with 1000 bucks. She's never been arrested in her life. Single mom, two kids, working two jobs, going to school, and... She calls her family and says, can you pawn my laptop? Can you sell my TV? Can you lend me money? And it takes her five days to scrape together a 1000 bucks from her friends and relatives, and she finally gets out. It turns out she'd been charged by her sister with assault. Her sister was mentally ill. And when her hearing rolled around three months later, the case was dismissed. But many folks can't, even within five days, get the $1,000 together. So they would have spent those three months in jail. And for someone even like Shannon Wise, missing work for a day or two days or five days is enough to cost you your job. And as you said, it can set in motion a series of catastrophes. People lose their homes. They lose their families as well. It costs us, taxpayers, 100 to $150 a day to keep people like Shannon Wise in jail. And on the other hand, it's very simple to keep track of them and much less expensive to keep track of them if they're released before trial. 
So we talk about people like like Shannon Wise, right? I mean, and, and a story like in a story like hers. But of the seven to eight thousand people that we're talking about, um, we're talking daily, where this is the reality. Uh, how many of them are are, are nonviolent offenders, or, or how many are there on on failure to appear or, or FTA warrants uh, for things like traffic tickets? We we don't have definitive statistics on that, Wes. But look, if somebody's in jail and bail is set at $5,000, and certainly less than $5,000, that person cannot be a threat, cannot be uh, somebody who's going to fail to appear because the judge shouldn't be letting him out. If you've got somebody who's guilty of a violent crime and bail is set at only $5,000, all they have to do is put together $500 to pay a bail bondsman, and they're gone. So... Judges shouldn't be setting bail in amounts that low for dangerous people, and I don't believe they do. So as a result of your letter to the Court of Appeals, I know, uh, you know we're looking at possible changes through this setup in both the courts and also in the General Assembly. Um, can you tell us about what possibilities are on the table for reform? Yes, the, the Court of Appeals uh, makes rules for practice and procedure in the courts, and there is a rule that's been proposed that they are considering and will vote on on February 7th that says very simply, don't incarcerate somebody because they're poor. It says if you're a judge and you're setting terms of release, you must consider the financial ability of uh, the person in front of you to meet those conditions. That bail shouldn't be used to hold people it should only be used to ensure that they'll show up for trial. If you've got, when I say it shouldn't be used to hold people, you got somebody who's a threat, is going to hurt his girlfriend, is going to hurt somebody else, hurt himself, lock him up. If you've got somebody who's going to flee, lock him up before trial. But otherwise, they should use all means other than bail first before trying to uh, impose a financial condition. You can put a GPS device on them. You can make them come in for a drug test or make them come in just to check in and say that they're, they're not getting in trouble, that they're looking for work, or that they have a job. But don't impose financial conditions. They're going to hold people in jail. If you're just tuning in, I'm Wes Moore, and this is Future City, and we're talking by phone with Maryland Attorney General Brian Frosch, who has taken a very strong position on bail reform. So, uh, Attorney General Frosch, I'm I'm curious. So, later in the show, we're going to hear from a judge, a bail bondsman, a nonprofit advocate, as well as a pretrial services director, and all of whom who have obvious stakes in, in how this system works and, uh, and where this thing is going to go, uh, and both personally and professionally. But as Attorney General, you don't have a direct stake in this issue, yet you come out with a very strong opinion uh, as to how you think this thing should should play out. Coming from Montgomery County and now sitting in, in the seat as Attorney General for the state, uh, can you tell me about what shaped your thinking and how this issue became important to you? Well, yeah. The, the First of all, uh, as you noted, we think this system is not right. The, their constitutional problems. In Griffin versus Illinois, the Supreme Court said the state can no more discriminate on account of poverty than, account, than on account of religion, race, or color. So we think there are constitutional issues. Second, this system that we have is, is not effective. 
it's been evaluated repeatedly. There was a governor's commission in 2014 that found that there's actually an inverse relationship between bail amounts and risk to public safety. And by that, I mean the bail was set higher for low-risk defendants than for moderate and and high-risk defendants. The system disproportionately affects racial minorities. Bail is set much higher for African-Americans than it is uh, for whites. And a lot of low-risk people are affected. That is to say, you know, they get held in jail. When they're not a risk, it costs taxpayers money, and it's bad for the, the folks who are held. And finally, we can do it much better. We can do it cheaper. It costs between $2.50 and 15 or $20 a day to supervise somebody on the outside, and as I said before, 100 to 150 to, to hold them. And we see our neighbors, uh, District of Columbia, State of Kentucky, Colorado, Montgomery County in Maryland, St. Mary's County uh, in Maryland, getting better outcomes by relying on robust pretrial systems than on doing what we're doing. So all of those things, you know, I'm supposed to be the chief law enforcement officer in Maryland, and I think it's important for me to draw attention to these facts that are just smacking us in the face. So you mentioned St. Mary's County. Why is St. Mary's County a a part of our own state? Why have they uh, taken a bigger lead on this issue than even the state has? So it's a a great story. Captain Mike Merrickan is the head of their corrections department, and he said their county was planning to build a new wing on the jail because their population was getting so large, and then reversed course. And he had to find a way of uh, supervising 30 to 50 defendants without putting him in his crowded jail. So he put together a pretrial system. He got help from Montgomery County, and he found that he can now watch 50 people on the outside with the same resources that he had before, and it costs him, he saves hundreds of thousands of dollars a year by doing that, and he gets better results. Fewer failures to appear, fewer crimes while people are on release pending trial. As we think about how this is going into session and what we hope to get done, what does success look like for you at the end of session? I think if the Court of Appeals adopts the rule that they're considering, that will be a huge success. I hope that it will lead the General Assembly and the state to investing in pretrial systems. Uh, The more robust they are, the better they'll perform Uh, the safer world we will all be and the more money we'll save. Attorney General Brian Frosch, thank you so much for joining us and uh, and thank you for your time and your leadership on this issue. Wes, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. So we're going to take a break now and when we come back we're going to hear how the pretrial systems work differently in Washington DC and Louisville, Kentucky. This is Future City and I'm Wes Moore. Stay with us.
I'm Wes Moore, and welcome back to Future City, a show where we move the conversation from what's wrong with Baltimore to what's next. We're talking this hour about how Baltimore and other cities deal with the sometimes months in between when a person is arrested and when he or she has to stand trial. A big part of that question now here on the table in Maryland is the issue of money bail. In our last segment, we spoke with Maryland Attorney General Brian Frosch about the bail system Baltimore has now. Meanwhile, the federal court system and Washington, D.C. have eliminated money bail altogether, and they keep tabs on defendants whom they don't think are dangerous or flight risks with drug tests, ankle monitors, and phone calls. Joining us now by phone to talk about how that works in D.C. is Superior Court Judge Truman Morrison. Judge Morrison, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Good morning. Glad to be here. So what, what happened in D.C. that actually initiated this change? In the, uh, we had been, just like uh, most every place in America is today, for many, many, many years, we were a money bond jurisdiction relying heavily on money bonds in felony cases. Um, and we had a lot of people in jail pretrial. In, in 1992, a coalition of the head of pretrial services, our prosecutor and our defender, went to the city council and got our law changed. One, one sentence was the key, um, and it is a sentence similar to one pending before the Court of Appeals um, in Maryland right now. That sentence was that a judge, and this was a sentence we took from the federal law where it had been for decades. That sentence reads, um, a judge can use a money bond as long as it does not result in the pretrial detention of the person. So all of a sudden, we ensured with that change in our law that people had a right to a money bond they could meet. And when that happened, because most criminally accused people are poor people, judges really couldn't use money bonds anymore because the bonds they would set were beyond people's reach. So we turned to completely change how we did business. And we did it in two ways. We, we started using a preventive detention law, which enables us, after hearings and due process with a lawyer, if we decide that you're too dangerous or too big a flight risk, then we hold you with no bond. Rich or poor, you, you stay in jail. Everybody else we release, either on their personal promise or supervised by our pretrial service agency. And we preventively detained last year about 9% of all of the people that we arrested in Washington. And the other 90-plus uh, percent we released without using money bonds. And almost 90% came back to every court date, and almost 90% were not rearrested. So we've shown that you can have a successful, fair, and effective pretrial system without using money at all. So when you think about the results and the things that D.C. is even doing right now to continue to work with, uh, work with the system, uh, what alterations do you see D.C. having going forward, and how do you think that's going to impact the results? Well, I think our system is, is quite successful at this point, but we're not perfect, and there are things that we could do to improve. I understand that you may be speaking later with um, the head of Kentucky's pretrial service agency, Tara Blair. She is the nation's leader in showing us 
how you can accomplish a highly successful pretrial system without over-supervising people. They supervise very few people beyond just releasing them on their promise and being able to stay in touch with them. As judges move from using money bond, there is a danger, and it happened to us, that judges will say, if there are six possible conditions I can put on you, I'll put seven on um, just to feel safer. And evidence doesn't support that. Most people do not need a lot of conditions. Most everyone is going to come back to court, and most everyone is going to stay arrest-free. And so over-conditioning in the systems that are moving from money bond is a real problem. But Tara Blair and the Kentucky example show that you don't need to over-condition. Her success rates are even better than ours. So you don't see judges using it as an opportunity to slot more people into the category of too dangerous or too much of a flight risk with the, when, when you have such an absolute determination as to whether or not they should be released or not? Well, there is a danger of that, and as around the country, those of us that are working on pretrial justice issues, in order to eliminate money bond, we have judges have to have a way to deal with people that are too risky, um, either flight-wise, uh, which is not really much of an issue um, in felony cases, or danger-wise. Um, they have to have a way to do that, and the way to do that is with a fair and open and transparent preventive detention system. But there is always the danger that it will not be sufficiently limited. And so as we are promoting preventive detention as a way to eliminate money, we are taking great pains to urge that at its creation, states limit the power that judges have to preventively detain. And as I mentioned last year, out of all the people we arrested, we only preventively detained 9%. Final question, Judge Morrison, as we continue to see this happen throughout the country, what are some of the prerequisites that you look for that you think are necessary and needed for a jurisdiction to move forward on this initiative? Judges need the help if they are going to not just warehouse people pre-trial, separating the arrested people into two groups as we do across this country, the people with the money to pay their way home and the people without the money who must sit in jail as judges move to a fairer more just way to decide these issues they need the help of a pretrial service program of some variety and that is essential so that judges have resources available to them to help supervise it doesn't have to be expensive uh... it can be very cost effective and, as I mentioned, there needs to be a way to deal with a very, very small percentage of people whose risk we can't mitigate, we can't manage, and we need to hold them rich or poor. So we need a fair preventive detention capacity. If we have those two things and a decent bail law that de-emphasizes money, you can move um, and make amazing change. The state of New Jersey is a perfect example. Two years ago, almost every case had a money bond, and their jails were overflowing with uh, people on small money bonds who couldn't afford to go home until their trial and whose lives were wrecked by pretrial incarceration. They have transformed themselves in two years. Now, we still have to see how it's going to play out, but thus far, it's very promising. That's happening in New Mexico. And around the country, Kentucky, um, 
Colorado, lots of other places. Well, not lots of other places, not as many as we would hope. But I think the momentum for change is finally in place. That's uh, Truman Morrison, who's a Washington, D.C. Superior Court judge. Uh, judge Morrison, thank you so much for joining us and for the insight into what's going on in D.C. You're welcome. Good to talk to you. If you're just joining me, I'm Wes Moore, and this is Future City. We're talking today about bail reform, and we just heard from D.C. Judge Truman Morrison about how that city eliminated money bail altogether. Now, one of the four bills on bail coming before the Maryland General Assembly this session aims to do just that here, but it's a long shot. More likely, Maryland will modify its pretrial services in a way that resembles Kentucky. Like us, Kentucky is what is known as a right-to-bail state. But 30 years ago, it took a radical step and outlawed commercial bail bonds. Instead, it threw its energies behind assessing defendants' flight risks and chances of being arrested again using a tool that they called risk assessment, a series of questions about their history and social factors. Now, in 2011, the state decided that judges have to release defendants with low and moderate risk scores without requiring them post money. Since then, over a dozen other states have modeled their pretrial systems on Kentucky's. And joining me today by phone is the person who's working at making that happen and really built the entire model behind it, Tara Bo Blair, who's the executive officer of the Kentucky Department of Pretrial Services. Tara, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And so, Tara, I have to say, uh, you, you're, uh, you are just being praised by Judge Morrison uh, about the work that you guys are doing down there. So we're really excited to learn more about how those reforms worked uh, and what the results have, have been that you've seen thus far. Well, um, prior to 2011, Kentucky um, had really good bail laws. But what happened in 2011 was that the law changed that required judges to consider a pretrial risk assessment and then based on those results, a judge is required to release a defendant on recognizance or unsecured bond unless the court finds in its discretion that the defendant is a flight risk or a danger. So pretrial services has been using a risk assessment since 2006. We redid that in 2010, and then in 2013, we began using what's known as the PSA court, the public safety assessment. This is a tool that was created by Laura and John Arnold Foundation. We've been using that, again, since 2013. It's been very successful for us. Every defendant that is arrested prior to any release decision is assessed by pretrial services. We also have what's called an administrative release program, meaning that if a person is charged with a low-level offense, they score low to moderate on the risk tool, then pretrial releases the defendant on recognizance. If they score higher than that, or if they're charged with a more serious offense, then we present that information and a judge makes that decision. So when you think about the assessment and how it actually works and how it's rolled out, I mean, some of the, the critics behind it have said, when you're thinking about the PSA courts and the assessments, that the reporting can be unreliable on, on forecasting violent crime, that it can be race-based. You know, how have you confronted those issues and those criticisms about it? Well, the tool itself has been heavily researched, and the researchers that developed it actually um, looked at all the data and found that this tool is actually gender neutral, racially neutral, ethnic neutral. It, um, it doesn't have that, that bias. Um, the tool that we use is 100% based on the charging document and the criminal history of the defendant. So it's, it's objective. There's no subjectivity um, whatsoever with the tool. 
So when we think about Baltimore, and just for a sense of context, I mean, we think about the risk assessments that Baltimore, uh, you know, currently uses. And, you know, Baltimore currently has a very stripped down risk assessment uh, that, that we'll look at. When we think about, there's a, a reporter from The Atlantic uh, showed in, in a recently leaked copy, uh, showed that Baltimore uses really a seven question, uh, you know, analysis that's, that's clearly biased about people who come from poor, mostly black neighborhoods uh, here in Baltimore City and where they're statistically likely to be arrested and arrested repeatedly uh, and starting when they're really young. So as you're thinking about Baltimore making these adjustments uh, and you take the lessons learned from Kentucky, what are some of the biggest lessons that you think Baltimore can take from how you've done your assessments to make sure that when we do this, that we get it done right the first time? Uh, Well, first and foremost, um, the risk assessment that we look at doesn't look at arrest. It looks at prior convictions. So again, it's very objective um, and it's 100 percent based on that criminal history. Um, so, again, we're not looking at pre- previous arrests. We're looking at previous convictions okay. and to get an overall picture of that particular defendant. And so as you're taking that information from that person, how have you noticed about trends on the arrests and trends on the convictions? Have things changed even within the neighborhoods as we've seen those assessments being placed? And how is uh, and how is using this type of tool not just impacted how we think about money bail, but how has it also impacted some of the other social determinants that we've seen within our society in certain of your communities? Well, in Kentucky, we're a very diverse state. We have, um, we're a majority a rural state, but we also have um, several cities as well. Um, and I guess the most comparable to Baltimore would be Louisville, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. That's our largest city. Population-wise, it's very similar to Baltimore. The number of arrests are very similar to Baltimore. And what we see is it doesn't matter if you're in the inner city of Louisville versus the rural area. The defendants' outcomes are pretty much the same. Mm-hmm. The only difference is in our urban area, which would be similar to Baltimore, we have a slightly higher percentage of defendants who score high risk, but it's still not that many defendants are classified as high risk. But that's pretty much the only difference that we see and that would be similar to Baltimore. But you're still looking at even high risk. What that means in Kentucky is that 85% of those defendants, even though they score high risk, they're not charged with a new crime pending trial. And about 78% of them come back to court. So we have to be really careful even when we assess people to, to label somebody high risk what that really means. How much does that number differ uh, from what you saw before implementing this? I mean, that's, that's an impressive sorry. 85% is, is, is significant when you think about, uh, you know, the probability and the possibility of someone actually getting involved in something else prior to, prior to trial. I mean, have, has that number moved significantly since the incorporation of this? No, it, it really hasn't. It's pretty much been steady, at least over my tenure with pretrial, which is 22 years. Huh. Overwhelmingly, pretrial defendants do remarkably well. On release, and we can't forget the fact that they're presumed innocent, and right. these people have not been convicted of anything. And when released into the community with conditions, I mean, the higher the risk level, of course, there's going to be conditions of that release. But the majority of defendants are not getting rearrested for new crime, and they are coming back to court. Tara Bo Blair from Kentucky's Department of Pretrial Services. Tara, thanks so much for joining us and for your leadership on this issue. You're welcome. My pleasure. You're tuned to Future City. I am Wes Moore, and after the break, we'll talk with Mark Adams of Broadway Bail Bonds here in Baltimore and get his thoughts on this issue. And later on, we're going to hear from Sharice Burdine of the national nonprofit Pre-Child Justice Institute about how D.C. and Kentucky's lessons might pertain right here in Baltimore.
Stay tuned. I'm Wes Moore, and this is Future City. So today we're talking about how to fix the pretrial justice system here in Maryland, and the hot issue on the table right now is money bail. So joining me in the studio is a man who's largely in favor of that system, Mark Adams. Mark is a bail bondsman here in Baltimore and the director of the Maryland Bail Agents Association. It's great to have you show, Mark. Thanks so much. Great to be here. So what first brought you to this work? Actually, accumulating statistics for a friend who had bought into a bail business. Uh, he was on the phone with me, and he said, it'd be nice if we could get some statistics about who's getting locked up. And I said, well, I can get them for you, because I'm pretty good with data. Hmm. And uh, I kind of backed into the business. So how, how long have you been backed into this business? Nine years. Nine years. And so what type of things and, and evolutions have you seen in the nine years that you've been in this business that you think has brought this conversation to the point that it is right now? There's a very well-organized lobby that is pushing for these pretrial risk assessment tools as a replacement for the discretion and judgment of judicial officers. Mm. We had a bill that was introduced by then-Senator Frosch in 2014 that would have completely done away with the district court commissioners and replaced them with a computer model. The computer models are, are exalted as the, some magical formula when, if you look at them objectively, they get a lot of things wrong. For example, the Kentucky pretrial risk assessment formula does not consider the severity of the crime. You look at Bishop Heather Cook, who was accused of and convicted of, of uh, running over a, a cyclist when she was driving drunk. The Kentucky risk formula would have called for her to be released without supervision. Her own lawyer wasn't asking for that. Now Attorney General, then Senator Frush, he speaks of a study that said that high-risk defendants get lower bails than low-risk defendants. That's based on a two-week study and if you can believe the study, it said that seven of 25 people who were charged with murder during that two weeks in Maryland were low-risk defendants. So if they got bails, they should have been high bails, and most of them should have been no bail. And <clears throat> that study itself, if you look at the data, and I just discovered this on the morning of the Court of Appeals hearing, I'm looking at it, I said, wait a minute, when have they charged 25 people with murder in the state of Maryland in a two-week period? As dangerous as it can be in places in Maryland, not that many people get killed in two weeks, and they definitely don't get charged because we have very low clearance rates. So the data was just, it's either severely mistaken or made up. And that's what we are contending with in this debate. So I've endeavored to get data in my preparation for the Court of Appeals, and I devised a computer program that pulled case docket entries off of the state's website and looked at 112,000 cases. And what did you find? I found, for example, Montgomery County, which is the mecca of pretrial release in Maryland, has a 17.3% failure to appear rate, which is a legitimate public safety emergency. And in the nuisance cases, shoplifting, for example, 
we had a guy who had two open warrants for failing to appear in both Montgomery and Prince George's County. He had open warrants in the District of Columbia. He was supposed to be on an ankle bracelet for GPS monitoring, but they didn't get him fitted with the ankle bracelet. And on Christmas Day, he strangles a woman to death. You had Dion Sabatker, who murdered Jonathan Harris, strangled him to death in Silver Spring. Sabatker had four open warrants for failure to appear. And because the jurisdictions where these warrants were issued didn't use bail bondsmen, no one was really looking for him. That's the problem that, that gets created by these excessively permissive standards of pretrial release. So your organization is, is the chief opponent to these changes that are currently being proposed uh, on the state level. What type of changes do you think do need to be made, or do you think the system is working perfectly fine right now? Nothing works perfectly fine, particularly in Baltimore City. I mean, when you have a city that has 300-plus murders in a year, something's not working. A couple of things need to happen. <clears throat> First of all, they use the, the term money bail. It's kind of an imprecise term. There are corporate bails that are collateralized with the corporate bonds, and there are cash-only bails. The cash-only bails are extremely unfair. Can you explain the, explain the difference to the listeners? A cash-only bail, it's usually when a judge is being irate, and there's three or four judges who kind of, this is their thing. They say to a guy, okay, I'm going to reduce your bail from... 50000 to 5000 cash only, which means the person would have to come up with $5,000, 500 whatever the amount is, in cash to be released. Mm. Poor people don't have cash. If they deal with a commercial bondsman, I'm sure you've seen the ads, 1% down. We finance through installment plans. It gets a lot of people out. The cash-only bails, which I think, believe there were 260 of them, uh, about 60% of the people don't get out. And that's a problem. The other problem is there are bails that I call the, the Jerry Springer bails, where a judge will set a million-dollar bail on someone. No one pays 10% for a million-dollar bail. My guess is 4 to 5% of the bail amounts are what actually get paid across the board. Right, because the, 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 the Jerry Springer bond, those are complete exceptions to yeah, the general rule that we're to, talking about. To get back to Bishop Cook, they put, I think, a $2.5 million bail on her. I mean, she got sentenced to jail, or her boyfriend signed for her. Uh, I don't know how he's going to pay $250,000. I mean, it's unrealistic. Mm -hmm. So when you think about these things like these different risk assessments, do you think that these risk assessments are fair? No, and ProPublica did a study of the one of the more popular formulas and found that they discriminate against black defendants. And in Baltimore City... We had what we called the, the arrest-a-thon back in the early 2000s mm -hmm. when everyone, particularly in the black community, was getting locked up for, they called it zero tolerance, zero tolerance. but it was, it was just insane. You had 100,000 people run through central booking one year. Those folks, under some of these formulas, are going to be discriminated against based on their record. So their history of being arrested and released under the COMPASS formula, which is what ProPublica dealt with, that formula will discriminate against them. And there has been no effort to have a mass expungement or a mass post-conviction of all of these cases. So that's a problem. 
if we think about the bills that are going up right now, I mean, this will have direct impact on you and also your yes. industry as a private yes. bail bondsman, you know. And so many ways, you know, the, with the current structure as is, you kind of see yourself as almost like an arm of the state as, you know, helping to facilitate that system. Seeing yourself as an arm of the state, uh, could that system work without you? Could that system work without the private bail bondsman? It, it will stumble along without us, but as we've seen in Montgomery County, Prince George's, Charles County, St. Mary's, there are double-digit failure-to-appear rates in both of those jurors and all of those jurisdictions. The Dion Sabatkers of the world, the man who strangled Tricia McCauley on Christmas Day, they're all going to slip through the cracks and continue to slip through the cracks. The guy who killed Ms. McCauley, he had open warrants when he was apprehended in subsequent cases, and no one bothered to lock him up. It's a major failure of the system. That is Mark Adams of Broadway Bail Bonds here in Baltimore and also the director of the Maryland Bail Agents Association. Mark, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. So if you're just tuning in, I am Wes Moore, and this is Future City. Today, we're talking about reforming Maryland's pretrial justice system, which currently relies heavily on bail. And now joining me by phone from D.C. is Sharice Burdine, the CEO of the Pretrial Justice Institute. Sharice, thank you so much and welcome to Future City. Thanks for having me. So I, I know you, you heard part of, uh, of what we were discussing before with Mark Adams. Uh, I was wondering if you had any responses or any thoughts about what he was saying. First, I'd like to say that uh, I really commend Maryland for taking what is the next step on this long journey that they've been on regarding pretrial justice reform in the state. Um, As you heard from your prior guest, um, we mostly hear opposition to common sense solutions around pretrial justice issues from the commercial surety industry. If you think about what we're doing, which is trying to move the system to safe, fair, and effective practices, Almost nobody is opposed to that. Uh, We don't need low-risk people pre-trial, in detention, for an inability to be able to pay bond, actually being made worse by what's going on in jail. And we certainly don't need uh, an avenue for people who are an unmanageable risk in the community to simply be able to be released because they can't afford it. So much of what I heard from Mr. Adams, um, we hear all over the country when it comes to opposition to reforming these kinds of systems or making the improvements that are actually needed. So, and your nonprofit is one of the strongest advocates uh, for this change nationwide. And so you're intimately familiar with all of these three models. You know, what lessons from D.C. and Kentucky do you think that uh, most pertain to what's taking place here in Baltimore? Well, I think, you know, what's great about the D.C. example and the Kentucky example is that these are examples of long-standing efforts to improve these systems, continually improve them, and you see exactly what we hope to see when improving pretrial justice systems. The goal of pretrial release is to maximize the number of people who are at liberty during uh, the time in which they're waiting for their trial, but simultaneous with that is to have the highest court appearances and the highest public safety rate we can, taking the most risk we're required to take by law, which is that most people should be released pending trial. The questions really are, how do you identify those people? So Washington, D.C. and Kentucky are using what we recommend and advocate for, much like the Surgeon General advocates for exercise, good nutrition, and no smoking. 
So we advocate for the use of validated objective risk assessment to help identify folks who are manageable releases in the community. And we advocate for least restrictive conditions of release that permit people to be successful, and we provide support. We ask that communities provide support to those folks in terms of court reminders, uh, you know, monitoring and supervision in the community, referrals to services, that kind of thing. And both D.C. and Kentucky do that and have been doing that. They have high release rates. They have good detention rates of people who are dangerous or unmanageable, and they have high return to court and high public safety rates. How do, now, how do we think about supports, particularly when we're talking about people who have yet to be found guilty uh, of, of, a, of a crime yet? You know, so how do we think about community supports, and how do you get community buy-in for that? That's a great question. When I say su- community support, what we're talking about really is court reminder systems, text messaging, phone calls, whatever it takes. We're talking about monitoring, which can be as simple as a once-a-week call-in, a once-a-week in-person visit, things that just let someone know, while you're out pending trial, we're just keeping an eye on you, and we want you to be successful. We want you to get to court. We want you to take care of your case. And actually, the better you perform on pretrial release, certainly that goes in your favor when you go to court. So that will actually be a part of the packet. That'll be part of the assessment uh, that people will utilize once a person actually goes to trial. Yes, if you look at D.C. and Kentucky, the risk assessment's only half of the equation. Risk assessment tells you the likelihood of that person based on their characteristics, the likelihood they'll show up for court and stay out of trouble. But that's just their unmitigated risk. And so once you know what that score is, you sort of look over at another grid and you say, people with this kind of score do the best under these kinds of supervision conditions. Usually, that's very, very little. The Kentucky model is one of my favorites. They supervise very few people in the community. And and I appreciate the reference to Kentucky being sort of a mostly rural uh, area, but if you look, um, Louisville is not a uh, Louisville is not a rural center. Louisville has real crime uh, and yeah. real defendants who are out pending trial, who are being monitored in the community safely, and who are showing up for court and staying out of trouble. Not everybody, as Mr. One thing Mr. Adams and I can agree on is that nothing is perfect, but the law and the science require us uh, to do the right thing here. When Maryland decides to go forward and, and we'll have a vote on this, and let's say Maryland actually gets something done on this, there are always going to be growing pains of implementation. What do you expect to be the main growing pains of implementation for something like this? And how, do you, how would you suggest that we think about that and prepare for them? The key is, are folks being released under conditions that are the least onerous but also have the most likelihood of making sure people get back to court and stay arrest-free? Data collection is going to be a major implementation hurdle in Maryland. Uh, The system simply is not up to par for providing the kinds of data that are necessary for ongoing and continuous observation and transparency of the system. Which is probably part of the challenge why Maryland even has a system that it has right now, where if you don't have that data collected, uh, you come up with other means of being able to, to process that problem. Yes, I think we we have the potential here in Maryland to really radically change the system and improve the lives of Marylanders. Uh, The requirement to pay money, even if you have a, quote, ability to pay, what we know is that about 25% of felonies are either dismissed or people are found not guilty. 
and almost every felony has a money bond associated with it. So this $50 million industry in Maryland is not only being made on the backs of people who really are, are mostly too poor or at the poverty line or, or at such a low income uh, that this is onerous, even if they have an ability to pay. It is a trap door that allows people who have money, who are dangerous. Uh, those folks, if, if courts set a couple hundred thousand million dollar bonds, in theory, that's usually correlated with a concern about not letting that person out. Um, and so why should we have a system that allows those folks to get that trapdoor open with dollar bills? You've been listening to my guest, Sharice Burdine of the Pretrial Justice Institute. Sharice, thank you so much for joining us on Future City. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. As we're coming up at the end of this program, I just want to leave you with a few personal thoughts. It's painfully obvious that bail reform is a crucial element of the larger criminal justice rethink that Maryland needs to go through. We have people who have not been found guilty of anything, being treated like they're already convicted. And that has consequences not only in their individual lives, but on the legitimacy of our justice system. A report by the Office of the Public Defender shows that the money bail system hits racial minorities hardest where over four years, black defendants were charged premiums of at least $181 million, while defendants of all other races combined were charged $75 million. We can't have poor people disproportionately being punished because of poverty, or wealthy people getting the benefit of the doubt because of their affluence. The real principles of innocence until proven guilty and of justice under the law being blind have to be reflected in our policies before the hope of our future city can be realized. Future City is produced by Mary Wiltenberg and edited by Aaron Hankin. With special thanks today to Zena McCarr of the University of Baltimore and Eve Hannon and Paul DeWolf of the Office of the Public Defender. We welcome your feedback and you can email us with your thoughts and questions about the show at futurecity@wypr.org, or you can hit me up directly on Twitter at Westmore1 or Facebook and Instagram with at I am Westmore. Future City airs here on WYPR on the third Wednesday of each month at 1 p.m. and again at 9 p.m. You can also hear this episode and past episodes online at wypr.org slash future city. Until next time, for 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Westmore. Funding for Future City is provided by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation.